to see you, me and Phil, we're going to be a team, aren't we? We're good, we're good together. Um, you'll notice that I got the memo over the St Augustine's uniform um, for worship leading, so try to, it's actually a brighter shade of black. Um, I exclusively wear black nowadays, and I wore navy, dark navy blue uh, earlier this year, and there was a whole room that was like, oh my goodness, you're wearing colour, look at that. I was also thinking if my, if my kids were part of this kids program, you'd have to create um, a stream called Stoats, where they, could, where they could go and sort of be weasels together, because I think that's probably more, more their style. Hey, um, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine here, uh, meet Dave. This is Dave here, and this is what he looks like. This is us when we were younger. Um, I had beautiful long hair. He had whatever that was uh, going on. And uh, we first met when we were uh, 16 at a gig uh, that I was playing in Nelson. He loved Christian punk bands, and he had that eyebrow piercing. There was sort of a Christian punk MXPX. I don't know how old you guys are. I'm probably the oldest one in the room. But there was a Christian punk band called MXPX. You know Christians, they sort of move with the times, and they, like, you know, they just sort of become whatever's around them, and MXPX did that. And uh, I was in a punk band, and he'd just come to our gig. I'd just thrown sausages into the audience. Uh, which was sort of what we did, and he was very impressed by that. Um, and afterwards we went and we bonded over hot chips covered in melted cheese and tartia sauce in the back of a bus, and um, our friendship sort of went on from there, and we ended up living together in a, uh, an illegal flat in Nelson, uh, a ministry hub, you might think of it. We were there living together. We... Um, got evicted from that flat when the council found out uh, we were there. And then the landlord changed, and uh, we got back in again because he didn't know the bylaws. It was an amazing thing. So we got to live there twice. Um, we ran a uh, magazine together. We used to put on dodgy youth events um, together. Uh, we fought for the affection of the same girls, um, which quite a, created quite a tense environment. I actually think he was quite interested in my wife at one point before we were married. Uh, he never said that explicitly, but I got the vibe. And uh, we had huge fallings out. Um, we we're quite, quite strong personalities uh, in our own way. You know those people where you have so much in common, you have nothing in common anymore? Uh, and so there's kind of a sense where there was sometimes quite a lot of energy going around with the things that we did. We ate a lot of curry together. We moved to different cities. We started families. Uh, we've been there for each other in our darkest moments when our lives have fallen apart. And nowadays, we love to bond over our attachment issues. This is classic middle-aged stuff. Oh, tell me about your anxious attachment. Oh, I'll tell you about mine. We just love it. Just the best of friends. And... Um, like all good friendships, uh, we, you know, you have these stories that you tell. And I want to tell you this, one of the most famous stories that me and Dave have. The issue is, this is a very popular story with non-Christians, not a popular story with Christians, and particularly older Christians get nervous around this story. So I'm going to tell you it, and I'm going to hope that it lands, because it is a wonderful story. Uh, the story has spread actually throughout New Zealand, and people have said, tell me that one. It can't be true. This can't really have happened, but it did. So Dave and I, 19 years old, we got $500 from the local council to put on this youth event called Le Rock. It was French-themed. 
Le Rock. Other than that, there was nothing that was French about it. It was just called Le Rock. Um, we thought that was quite clever because we were 19. We didn't have any frontal lobes and full of our own ego, which I, of course, don't have any ego anymore. And uh, we needed to promote it. And so what we did is we got a big piece of plywood, which we turned into a great big billboard. You know, like you paint it so it's big. And we went down to the local skate park to put up this billboard because we thought we need the skateboarders to come to our event. But we didn't go through the proper procedures of getting a permit. Because where we wanted to put the billboard, it was illegal. To, do you notice this is a common theme? It was illegal to put a billboard there, but this was God's work. And we knew this was very important to do this, regardless of what Caesar said. We knew this was of the Lord. And so uh, my dad, uh, mum and dad were on a sheep farm, and so I went and got the, the things that we use for fencing. So we got some shovels and some stonkin' things, and we got all these fencing posts that we found, and we went down at about uh, 10 o'clock at night, and we started digging holes to put in this billboard. So if you imagine that me and Dave are there, I've got long hair, he's got his eyebrow piercing, and we're just digging a hole kind of in the middle of this field that's by the skate park, and we're digging, and we're digging, and it's hard work. Digging, dig, we dig this huge hole. It's very, very deep for the first post. And I'm sweating, <gasps> toiling away. But it's good because you know you're doing it for the kingdom. But oh, it's so hot. Oh. And I say, Dave, I think we need to have a sit down in that bush because I'm so tired. And he agreed. And so we were sitting down <gasps> next to each other on the bush. And we look up. And over the field, on the other side of the field, there is the Trafalgar Events Center. And Dave looks up and he says, that looks like a lot of people coming out of an event. I didn't know there was an event. I said, oh, there must be something. Looks like a lot of old people. They must have gone to the Seekers or something like that. Don't know what it was. And there was just like a zombie apocalypse of old people in the dark. <laughs> Getting closer and closer. And I said, oh, gosh, that's interesting. I probably wouldn't have come out tonight if we'd known there'd be lots of people that would catch us, but never mind. And then we're just silently there reflecting, watching, sneaking more into the bush because we thought, oh, we're going to get in trouble here. Oh. And Dave says, they're getting pretty close to where that hole is, eh? I didn't answer. I was like, hmm. Hmm. And then suddenly, you shouldn't laugh at this either, because it's not funny, but kind of is funny now. Suddenly, a lady got very short. <laughs> Ow, my hip! Ow! Ow, my leg! Ah! Then all these people gather around, about 20 or 30 people. Who would put a hole? here. Who would put a hole? And Dave says, do you think we should go tell them we put the hole? And I said, I think we should get in this bush and keep as low as we possibly can. So there's this lady go, oh my goodness, my... Ah! And, and so they kind of get her out. And then they say, we're going to have to call an ambulance. 
And so then the ambulance comes tearing around and sort of picks her up and gets her on a stretcher, and me and David just silently in a bush, <laughs> looking, <laughs> looking out going, this is a very bad situation. We kind of take the shovels with us so they can't find us. So the ambulance goes away, and everyone leaves. And then once the coast is clear, Dave and I get out and we go, let's dig the other hole quick. <laughs> well, because you can't, because in the morning you want them when they come back to find the hole, you want them to not find a hole. Hey, you're like, oh, weird, it must have been our imagination. So, uh, so we quickly dug the hole and we put the sign up. And that story, for some reason, really captured the imagination of young people. You know what I mean? Around what happens when two friends come together and put their mind towards a mission. I'm not sure how the... I'm sure the lady survived. I mean, I feel terrible about that. I know, I know some... Now as I get older, I think, God, oh, kick the butts of whoever dug a hole like that. But I was young. I didn't have a frontal lobe, all of those things. But one of the things increasingly in our fragmented and disconnected world is that actually um, more and more of us don't have a Dave in our life. We don't have anyone that we're doing like those adventures with. Um, we kind of have a memory of it from school and we've been trading off it for 10 or 20 years. And in particular, um, Western Pākehā culture is kind of experts at being lonely. Uh, and, you know, if you want to meet the loneliest people in the world, find the guys running workshops on connection and community development. And you go, how many friends have you got? <laughs> They're like, oh, I'm too busy running workshops to have friends. And uh, I'll show you a few quotes that I've got here, Phil. Um, one chap I met at university said, I leave my four years of studying at university having not made a single friend. That's not a super uncommon story of people who, um, who go to university. Um, it's probably not that different maybe from your own story if you went and studied. Uh, next one. Uh, I, I was chatting. I, I was at Parihaka. Uh, it was Parihaka yesterday. And I was at a Parihaka early morning blessing in Whakatū Nelson. And they have a, the Quakers put on a breakfast. Quaker breakfasts are crazy. It's kind of organic and vegan. But anyway, it was good. And I was there around a table with a guy who was telling me about the importance of community development and because he was studying at Massey University. And I said, oh, have you got any friends? And he said, oh, no, I don't have any friends other than her. And he pointed to his girlfriend. I guess I talked to her. I don't really have anyone else to talk to. I thought that was quite candid, hey, quite an honest response. But he realized when you just name it, who's your friends, he was like, community is an abstract idea he, could, he was keen to talk about. But when you actually say, who are your friends, who are you with, he didn't have, uh, he didn't have much to stand on. One of the main goals of international students coming to study in New Zealand is that they would make one Kiwi friend. Uh, that's constant. I worked as a chaplain at Canterbury Uni, and so you'd hear that from... And that's a big selling point to get international students to come to New Zealand, is you're going to come and you're going to make Kiwi friends, and you're going to have this rich time. But uh, most leave New Zealand having failed in that goal. They realise very fast that making a New Zealand friend is virtually impossible. Uh, and so they sort of have to give up on that and, and you know, join an international club or do, do whatever to try and, uh, try and still make friends uh, while they're there. And if you look at loneliness, um, there's some amazingly terrifying stats. In the UK, half a million older people go at least five or six days a week without seeing or speaking to anyone, which is quite a long time, eh? Um, in the UK, two-fifths of all older people say the television is their main company. I thought that was particularly sad. 
um, statistic. In 2010, one in three adult New Zealanders felt lonely to some degree in the last four weeks. Uh, and that includes a whole bunch of people who felt lonely all the time, 94,000 most of the time, and 12% some of the time. And 18% of young adults felt lonely almost or some of the time compared with 11% of older people. So one of the odd things that often it's younger people who are feeling lonely rather than older people, which has been a surprise, because I think a lot of older people think young people are in the, you know, in their pumping years of their life. But actually, that's not surprising for me. Talk to lots of young people, profoundly lonely. It's just that I don't think we've gotten out to share this enough to sort of join the dots. Uh, the next thing there, there's quite a lot of health risks, because one of the things you realise with um, particularly Pakia is you have to give them kind of quantifiable benefits. So you can't just say you should have a friend because you won't be as miserable. You have to say, you'll live longer. And I've got some research to back it up, and that always impresses people. So loneliness is likely to increase your risk of death by 26%. Uh, loneliness, living alone and poor social connections are as bad for your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Loneliness is worse for you than obesity. Um, loneliness and social, social isolation are associated with an increased risk of developing coronary heart disease, stroke, and increasing blood pressure. Uh, loneliness with severe depression is associated with early mortality, and uh, it also puts us at greater risk of cognitive decline and, uh, and dementia. That's kind of, I hope to give you a very, I'm a bit like on Andy's trip, giving you some encouragement and enthusiasm as we head into the, into the next uh, season. I was just talking to Josh Taylor before, who said um, some research has said um, for, for men, that sport has, one of the main reasons sport exists is because it's one of the ways that men get to touch other men and actually be in relationship somehow with other men. I know that everyone's like, I'm never playing sport again. I can see some arms folded, then clearly you're very emotionally in touch. But, um, but like there's actually a part of it is that we have this deep desire, don't we, for connection and that our fragmented world has pulled these connections um, apart. And part of the good news is how do we start to stitch some of these uh, connections back together? George Eliot says this, I love this quote, friendship is the inexpressible comfort of feeling safe with a person having neither to weigh thoughts nor measure words. And I wonder if you can think of a relationship that you're in. You know where you can drop your guard and where you don't actually have to weigh anything. You can truly be yourself and all the joy and all the mess. And that, I think, is a beautiful quote around what is friendship and what are we going, going for. As you read through Scripture, I think we tend to bring certain lenses to the Bible, and so we miss a whole lot of things. But you actually realize that friendship is a theme that runs throughout uh, Scripture. Uh, and for example, and there's lots of examples, but we have Ruth and Naomi who had that amazing friendship. I love this one, David and Jonathan. This is what my friendship looks like. Coming home from a hard day at work, saying, what did you get up to today? You know, oh, you won't believe what happened. You know what I mean? Off to dinner. Um, Paul and Timothy, we often talk of that as a mentor-mentee relationship, but a deep intergenerational uh, friendship. That's not a photo. Um, but near enough. Uh, Jesus, it's interesting to notice where, Jesus, where Scripture names Jesus' friendships is occurring. 
Um, and uh, Scripture is quite clear that Jesus is in friendship with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, that that's a friendship, a deep friendship connection. And you can see that when you're in Scripture, the way that they respond to Jesus is not just as a guru, but also as a deep, deep friend. And also we have Jesus with his beloved disciple, uh, John. Uh, we also see the challenges of friendship. We see the betrayal of friendship with Peter, uh, with Jesus. Uh, and then we see the restoration of Peter uh, when they cook fish on the beach together. And also Scripture has perhaps the most famous bad friends, uh, which is Job, the bad friends of Job. And I don't know if you've experienced this. You think you have good friends, and then a tragedy happens, and you discover you're Job's friends. Ah, oh, I've got a bunch of Job's friends in my life coming around, telling you what you did wrong. Here you go. Here's what you need to do. You need to go on keto diet. That would have sorted that out. You know, and so I think actually Scripture is full of rich stories uh, of friendship. And I think that friendship is probably the most neglected Western relationship. It's probably the most neglected Western relationship uh, because it's not our romantic relationship. You know, it's not, say, with a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a spouse. So we kind of have a category for that. It's not our family, whether it's our parents or our kids, and it's not collegial. So it's not like with our workmates. It's the other sad relationship that we just sort of don't even think about. And um, when I was working as the chaplain at Canterbury Uni, um, there was a lot of work done around how do we improve people's mental health. And they said, what would you do if you were coming to speak to us about improving people's mental health? What would you speak on? And um, I'm normally quite good at working out we, how do you get down to the crunch point where, you know, the hinge that will swing a door to get a conversation happening. And I said to them, I think we should do a workshop on friendship. And they're like, we're talking about mental health, not friendship. I was like, trust me, it's quite hard to have good mental health if you have no friends. Like, and it's quite hard to have anyone to look after you if your mental health goes bad if you have no friends. And they said, oh, sure, you can do what you like. Fine. Well, I did that workshop about 10 times over my time. You should have seen the way the students are like, oh my goodness, we've never heard such wisdom. Oh. And I was like, this is not wisdom. This is, if, if we think this is wisdom, it makes me feel so pathetic and lame. You know, these are very basic ideas. But they'd never heard anyone talking explicitly about it to say, here's what friendship is, here's how it works, here's how you can be a good friend. Like, they'd never heard anyone just sort of put, put that out there for them. So um, I don't know whether today is going to be a full sermon or maybe it's a little more just a brief talk around friendship and how Christians can understand friendship. But I actually think for many of you in this room, the good news is going to come in the form of you learning how to have friends and how to be a good friend. And that one of the good news that we can have for our local communities is to be guys who are really good at being good friends, that we actually know how to, uh, how to do that, how to do that work. So that's what I'm going to do, a brief trot with you uh, through this morning. Uh, I also, I love, this, I love this quote here. A friend is one who can overlook your broken fence and admire the flowers in your garden. Now, I know that sounds soppy, but I think you probably all experience friendships where they want to fix you all the time, you know, where you're a target for like being fixed, rather than a person that they delight in. 
And I actually think some of us relate in this way to God, that we feel like God's main objective is always to fix us, when there's this other part where God delights in us in the same way the parent delights in a child. And if you, I don't, I don't know if you know this, what it's like to be in a relationship where you're with someone who they just, they just see the things in you that they love and that they delight in. And I think that's an important marker of, um, of, of friendship. How do we find those people and how do we do this for others where we overlook some of the broken fences and we admire the flowers um, that we see in their garden? Look, there's three things that I always would tell the Canterbury University students about friendship. Um, and uh, so I'm going to tell you three things. And then I'm going to tell you five markers of, of, um, of friendship before you have a chance to have a little chat about that. And the first thing is this. And remember, they are writing their notes furiously. I'm sorry if this is obvious to you, but it's not obvious to most 18-year-olds out there. So I don't know where you learned it, though, because no one ever taught me this stuff. Firstly, friendship has limits. And uh, you can't have an infinite amount of friends. And I'll show you, this is my Facebook thing, it's true, Andy said I've got 1.7 thousand friends and probably have 600 waiting, you know, 600 people who I've just given up, you know, approving this. This has massive, Facebook has really massively messed with the word friend and our understanding as people of our capacity for friendship. So it's messed with the category so much that we don't really know what's a reasonable amount of friends to have. And so we're sort of like margarine that's been spread over four kilometres of bread, you know, rather than actually knowing how many friends can I have and what's normal. So, you know, in a normal village, you might have had 150 people. That's about the amount of people that you can know the names of. So if I've got 2,000, I mean, I'm, I don't even talk to these people when I see them on the street. In fact, I avoid half of them on the street, right? So it's a pretty... It's a really, um, it just kind of messes with your head over well, how many, social media has made us feel like we have to sustain many, many connections, and that's been good on one hand, but it's actually made us more lonely uh, because we haven't got a sense of our limits. And one way I think of it is a bit like Lego blocks, is that each person actually has an amount of free and available slots for connection and friendship. And for some of you, you might have two spare slots, and for some of you, you might have moved to a new city. And you're like, I've got 12. I'm in the market. I'm in the market to meet people. That's when you see people meeting people. People who are, have no friends meeting other people who have no friends from new cities, it's all on. Do you know what I mean? They'll overlook any kind of failing. Sometimes, though, when you turn up to church and you meet someone, you go, oh, my goodness, we connected. Who am I going to dump to have, make space for them? But that is part of the reality is you can't keep adding more and more deep, meaningful friendships. Like it, it actually is kind of breaking God's natural equation of things, that you can't have 100 close friends and then 200 close friends. You're not a TV channel, right? You're actually someone who's engaging. And so the first part is you kind of have to accept uh, that friendship has limits. The second thing is uh, that friendship takes effort. Now, before my dad died a few months ago, he died, uh, yeah, four months ago, every Sunday at 9 p.m., his best friend, Angus, who's from Scotland but lives in Wellington, would ring. This is my dad and Angus here. Every Sunday at 9 p.m. for 40 years. 40 years. No matter where they were, they were in the world, Angus would ring. And Angus now... Um, 
you know, his mental health is slipping a bit. And, 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 you know, I'm sure that sometimes they're like, oh, my goodness, Angus is ringing. I'm sure that was the case. But 40 years every time. And one of the things that this is, this is one of the things that frustrates me a bit, as I hear this on the radio all the time, I hear this from so many people, is they, they boast. They say this. They go, um, oh, I've got this amazing friendship. I don't have to talk to them for six months, and then when I see them, we just pick up from where we left off. And then so, oh, isn't that great? I just love friendships like that. I'm like, I'll tell you what that is. It's like Tinder. That is, that is a friendship booty call. That's what that is. That is nothing to be proud of. I have friends like that. It's good to have friends like that. I have lots of friends like that. But honestly, if that's your main strategy for having friends, when the crap hits the fan, you are in huge trouble. As it turns out, friendship takes the same effort that it does with marriage and with kids and with your colleagues. You actually have to invest in it. And it's the easiest one to dump. Do you know what I mean? It's the easiest one to say, I can't be bothered. I've made myself go out with friends. I didn't want to go and see them. I was tired. I had kids and a wife. I didn't want to do it. But I thought, if I ignore this, it's going to move. Within two months, they say, a friendship moves to an acquaintance. And you don't want that. You don't want to be in the acquaintance zone. Right? And so partly is, I think, that we have to realize that friendship involves making uh, an effort so that we're not just a lazy friend, but for those that are special to us that we invest in properly and that we prioritize even if we don't feel, uh, even if we don't feel like it. And um, lastly, uh, friendship is risky. Friendship takes two people, and sometimes one of those people or both of those people pull back, or they say something dumb, or they decide to ghost you. I mean, you will all experience this. Or they marry someone who you think's a dick. Or they have kids. You know, they do something. Something happens. Um, I mean, my mum's experienced this with my dad dying. The relationship's changing. Hey, that your, your spouse goes, and then you go, well, how do I navigate in the world? And so your friendships change. And um, friendship can change, and friendships die, just like people, just like relationships. And uh, next one there, Phil. And I think it can hurt. Friendships hurt. I'm sure you've all got a friendship that's died, and you know the pain. One of the greatest griefs I've ever experienced was going uh, with, a, with some friends that were a couple friends of ours, and one of the people talked a lot. And in a weak moment, I said, you talk too much. And that was the end of the friendship. Gone. Dead. I grieved that for five years. I found myself when I was crying, I'd just find this guy, the name of this friend coming up. And it was so painful. And you know, the temptation is to get out of the friendship market. Hey, the temptation is to say that's what happens with friendship. They abandon you and they hurt you. So it's just going to be me and my wife and my kids against the world. Lonely Parkia, here we go. And that's not actually, I think, what the kingdom of God looks like. I think partly Christians know that the price of love is that we risk and that we grieve. That's the gift that grief is to help us through it. And so uh, I, I guess I also want to acknowledge, I'm sure you've got friendships out there that have died or have become fragmented and hurt, and that actually you can heal through that. I hope that you don't pull back through it. And you never know, reconciliation 
can happen. Reconciliation can happen when someone says, I'm sorry that that happened. So I'm going to share with you lastly uh, five things that I think are pretty good markers of a healthy friendship. And uh, these are the five things that guys at university would write down and go, oh my goodness, is that how you be a friend? It's like, yes, this is how you do it. Because what I'm wanting to say is it's not just organic, it's something that you can practice and get better at. And also, if you've got someone who's just a rubbish friend, obviously you have to work out, (laughs) can they become a better friend? Am I patient enough to endure this? Or is, I don't want to overuse the word, but or is this a kind of a toxic relationship that I need to assess deeper? That's a, that's a big part that all of us have to personally kind of go through. But the first thing is this. Friendship involves trust. If you didn't get the memo. And that means no gossiping. It means you hold things in confidence. It means that when I've had some friendships and they just leak, Do you know what I mean? You share them something and you discover someone else is talking about it and you're like, I don't trust you now because you leak. And a friendship doesn't leak. A friendship is one where uh, we know that we can share things in confidence and also uh, we know that they won't abandon us if we mess up. You know, that it's not a provisional thing, that even if we mess up, and I remember a friend said to me, you know, even if you went to prison for 20 years, I'd still come and visit you because I really like your company. Now, I don't think he was hoping I'd go to prison. He was saying, I like you. And it's not based on what other people think of you. So, friendship involves trust. Second thing, friendship involves honesty, which means we have to be vulnerable and we have to allow ourselves to be real with each other. It means we have to be, allow ourselves to remove the masks. And it also means we have to be as low as we can on judgment of each other, but where we actually are able just to be with each other uh, without feeling like we have to tell people what they're doing all the time. But partly, friendship involves removing our masks rather than pretending. The third thing is, friendship deals with difference. Where we can come to accept different views and not just have to hang out with people who are carbon copies. One of my best friends votes for Donald Trump. I know, it's shocking. And I thought, can I remain friends with this man? He hates the Clintons. I went with him to the post, and I posted his Donald Trump vote in the letterbox with him. I took a photo. I said, look at me, voting for Trump. And I love him. And we are close friends. And there are things going on in American politics I don't understand. But I had to really say, just because someone votes for Donald Trump, does that remove every other aspect that I, you know, love about the guy? And I thought, no, I can live with that. Like, if he was a Nazi, I'd say no. But I came to the conclusion, I was like, I can deal with, I can deal with him being who he is. He's passionate about everything, you know, he's, and this is something that he's passionate about. And I think friendship can withstand difference, whether that's difference in belief, difference in all sorts of things. Uh, fourth thing... Friendship can deal with disagreement, and I think this is a hard one. Uh, we, can, we have to move towards reconciliation after we have a falling out rather than just walking away from it, because I just don't think you can have a vulnerable, honest relationship if you're always in fear that you'll say the wrong thing and then the thing's dead. We have to have a path towards reconciliation. Dave and I, I think we basically walked away from our friendship for three years in a functional way. 
because there's so many, <laughs> so many girls involved and so much eggs. You know, there's just all this stuff. And we kind of just walked away from it. And then for me, uh, when I turned 40, I thought, I actually am not going to find another 20-year friendship. Well, I'm not going to start from scratch. I've got a bunch of these. i just got to start getting them on the phone and rekindling this thing. You know, I don't, I'm not going to live forever. I can't keep starting my new long-term friendship. I've got to dig in. And we rekindled this thing, and now it's sort of vibrant and coming, coming back to life. But that did involve a bit of reconciliation of me acknowledging I was a real dick when I was 21, and I'm sorry about that. And he's like, yes, you were, but I love you. So, and lastly, uh, the last thing I think with friendship is uh, encouragement. That friends should be an encouraging voice, a cheerleader. So friendship shouldn't just be one-sided. You may know people that when you meet up with them, they're your friends, but they never ask anything about you. Have you? I've got lots of friends like that. And they'll just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk about themselves. And if you do well, they feel insecure, and they feel like they have to sort of pull you down a peg. Have you, have you had any of those toxic friendships, or is that just me? So, and I've done that to a few people too. So part of being a good friend is you want to see your friends do well. You don't just, like you don't, you know, if they, if they get a really good mark at uni, you don't say, oh, you know, you don't suddenly implode and say, try to undermine them and sort of sabotage them. Part of it is that actually a friend should be in your corner wanting you to, wanting you to do well. So I, wanna, I want you to turn, turn to your neighbour. I'll give you one minute. Which of these do you think is your superpower and which one are you bad at? Which one of those list of fives when it comes to your own friendship would you say, that's what I'm really good at? And which one do you go, that if I'm honest, that's one I need to work on and develop? I'll give you one minute. Have a chat with the person next to you. What I'm wanting to say is that you can leave, you can leave our, our time together this morning and actually go and become a better friend. Like you could actually go and be a better friend. You could pre- not everyone's going to naturally be good at those five things. I tell you what, I'm really good at trust. I'm like a trap. I won't ever gossip. I hate disagreement. I'll just cut you off. You're dead to me. I just don't want to deal with conflict. Well, it's not very good, is it? I just name that. It's not very good. Not a good ministry, is it? And so, uh, so I wonder how you could grow as a friend um, so that you can be a better friend. Last thing I wanted to just finish with is naming what we might call spiritual friendships. And uh, spiritual friendship is a soul that accepts who you are but also helps you become who God is calling you to be. Uh, someone who accepts who you are but calls you towards uh, who God is calling you to be. Dave and I, I'm not sure that he he ever imagined the meat-throwing, long-haired guy would become an Anglican priest. I think that was quite a strange twist for him uh, when we became friends. But whenever we meet, we do this. I'll show you. Here's a photo of us at Crave. Whenever we meet, (laughs) um, I pull out this thing called the Jesus deck, which is... um, these 1970s pictures of the gospel story, okay, and we sit opposite each other, and I go, shall I deal you up some Jesus dick? And he says, hit me. And we, <laughs> we de- it looks like we're doing tarot, but we're not, because we're Christians. But I do like other people looking at us like they think we're doing tarot. That does kind of me. And we put it out there, and then we choose a card, and we reflect how our lives are intersecting with Jesus' life, and we, and we pray for each other. 
We actually pray for each other. And before we finish our time together, we always say, I love you. Isn't that nice? Two 40-year-old men going, love you, bro. I love you. To make sure that we know that if I die, he knows I loved him. And he knows that I, like, it's like a discipline. We say, I love you. It's good for men to do that, to say, I love you, and to hug. I think it's good. You don't just have to play sport. But a spiritual friend is someone whom you feel safe sharing and exploring your faith with. A spiritual friend is someone whom prayer is not off limits, someone who attempts to offer God's perspective on things, someone who is a fellow pilgrim as you seek to follow Jesus, someone who offers nurture and challenge when required because they know your patterns and they love you too much to avoid speaking the truth in love, someone who is there for you when the shizer hits the fan, when everyone else is like, see you in six months. Jesus' words are this, that you love each other as I've loved you, and that greater love has no one than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And Jesus says this to you, you are my friends, and if you do what I command, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. And the thing I want to close on is this, you know, for those, if you feel deeply lonely, if you feel deeply hurt, if you feel like there's a part of you that is unlikable, if you feel like people have abandoned you or ghosted you, if you have social phobia and you struggle to get out and to meet people, if all, any of these things happen, I want to remind you of this, and it sounds corny, but it's been so important to me, that no matter what happens, that Jesus is actually our ultimate friend. Jesus is both the divine Son of God that has come down from on high, the Logos that sustains all the universe. But the crazy twist within the Christian story is that Jesus is our friend. Jesus calls us friends. And that actually, when you can allow Jesus to draw near to you as a friend, it's amazing how healing can happen in your life. It's amazing how you can enter the world feeling less lonely. It's not a substitute for actually having real friends. But I think more of us need to realize that Jesus loves us and likes us. That Jesus loves us and likes us and wants to be near to us. So I'm going to finish by praying, and, uh, and then we'll finish up there. So let's just bow our heads. God of love, we thank you for the gift of friendship. We thank you for the close friends that we've had in our life. We acknowledge the friends of past that are no longer in our life. Holy Spirit, I ask, Lord, that you would come and be with those of us who are holding pain and hurt from past friendships in Jesus' name. That you would release us from the spirit of isolation, the spirit of fear, the spirit of anxiety in Jesus' name that you would heal those painful parts of us that wonder, can we ever trust someone again? Can we ever be vulnerable around someone again? And that you would help us to enter back into the world and discover the good news of being in the company of someone where we neither have to weigh our thoughts or measure our words, but where we can just be. Lord, help us to identify those spiritual friends in our life and help us to find the capacity and the time to join closer to them, to journey closer with them. 
and give us a sense of your deep friendship, Jesus. Help us to really sense that we leave this place with you as our friend, as a person we can trust, be vulnerable with, someone who is in our corner, championing us, wanting the best for us, someone who loves us and likes us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.